morning. James chapter 4. Take out your Bibles, please. James chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, if you forgot it, didn't bring it, don't own one, there should be one. And the seat underneath the seat up in front of you, it should be black with a hard cover. If it doesn't, that's somebody else's, so don't grab that one. Grab it and open it up, James chapter 4. If you do not own a Bible, please take that one home with you. If you have a copy of God's Word, you too can be reading and studying. James chapter 4, we continue our verse-by-verse study through this really amazing, remarkable letter that the brother of our Lord wrote. And picking up somewhere in the latter part of chapter 1 and moving into chapter 2, we, we saw that the theme he started to develop in this was that our faith that we proclaim in the true and living God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, should be revealed in certain aspects of our lives. As a matter of fact, it should be revealed in virtually, as we're seeing, laying out before us, every aspect of our lives. We talked about how it should be displayed in the works that we do. It should be evident in the words that we say. It should manifest itself in the wisdom that we use, the way we think. Last week, we talked about the fact that it'll show itself in the wars that we fight. Instead of fighting against each other and fighting against God, we need to be battling the world and spiritual forces of darkness. Well, this week, we're going to see that our true faith, our, our faith needs to also be revealed in whose will we follow, who we surrender to in our wills. There's really, there's a couple of options. We can follow God by implementing his will, or we can play God by imposing ours. And James is going to address this in two different ways today. First of all, we're going to see as we begin to look at our section starting in verse 11, we can impose our will by playing God with other people. We take God's place when we put ourselves as judges, when we criticize one another. That's exactly what he says, starting in verse 11. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Very plainly, very straight to the point as we've known now James to be. He doesn't set it up. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't put pillows all around it. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren, period. Again, he's talking to Christians. One another, brethren, he uses that term several times through this. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Husbands, wives, parents, children, one another. Do not speak against one another. Now, I have to say that the translators, when they translated this, when we say speak against, that it's kind of a softer way of saying what the word really means. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, calls it exactly what it is when he's speaking of how the world speaks against Christians. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you, As evildoers, they may, because of your good works and good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter says it's slandering. There's a purpose to the words that are used. It's to tear down the one that you're speaking of. 
Now, back to our text today, James puts this hand in hand with judging someone else, judging their hearts, judging their motives. When you tear somebody down, when you speak against someone, James says in verse, verse 11 here, he who speaks against his brother or judges his brother, they go hand in hand. And we see that when we look back at our verse in Peter, the world slandering Christians, speaking against Christians because they think that they know our motives. When we speak of sin, what God clearly defines as sin in his word, the the world out there says, well, you guys are just a bunch of intolerant people, full of hate speech. But the truth of the matter is, it's the exact opposite. we, We speak these things out of love, not out of hate. We know what God's word says. We know what his standard is. We know what God calls sin, and we know the wages of sin. We know the penalty of sin. We know that all of us as sinners, all of us have fallen short of the glorious holy purpose and standard that God has set for every one of us. We have sinned. We have committed treason against a holy and righteous God. Every one of us. And we deserve separation. We deserve punishment in hell for that sin. That is what the Word of God tells us. We also know the solution. Jesus Christ, God himself, stepped out of heaven, lived a perfect sinless life in our place, died in our place on the cross, shedding his blood to cover our sins, to wash us clean if we simply receive him as our Lord and Savior, trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. Our sin is washed away. The world needs to know that. That is the greatest love story ever told. That is the motive behind what we say. But the world looks at it and says, I know your hearts. I know your motives. And that's what James is saying here. When we speak against each other, by the way, he says, don't do it. It should never happen. But when we do, it's because we're judging each other. I'm placing myself in the judgment seat over your heart when I speak against you. I know why you're saying that. I know your motives. I know your heart. I can see right through it. The Bible warns us many times over and over not to make judgments based on outward appearances. Now, most of the time that is said because we have a tendency to go the other direction and elevate people based on what we see in their outward appearance, not knowing their heart. And God says, I don't do that. I judge, I I raise people up, I use people because of their hearts, what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. But James is using it in the other direction here, where we tear people down based on the outward appearance, based on what we can see on the surface. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. Again, when we're judging on outward appearance, we're judging without knowing all of the facts. We don't know what this person's past is. I don't know the hurts that you've suffered in your past. I don't don't know the kind of week that you had this week. I don't know what you dealt with at work. I don't know what you dealt with at home. I don't know the news that you got from the doctor. I don't know all of those things, and yet I pass judgment on you based on something you may have said or done. And James says, we can't do that, because we don't know. Chuck Swindoll tells a story of when he was in seminary, and 
he was overseeing a group that was in charge of bringing in missionaries and, and dealing with mission work. And they brought in this particular missionary who was in from the, the field for a while, and he was traveling around and, and speaking at, at different venues and sharing what God was doing and, and, and very powerfully, supposedly, sharing the gospel. Well, they pack the house out, and Chuck's in back with the group of other students that were in his group that had brought him in. And he gets up, and this man shares, and flat, really not engaging, you know, just really really struggling through the whole message that he's sharing. And Chuck confesses. He's in back, and he starts speaking against this guy with the other group of, of guys that he's with. And he's saying, man, this is the one that we were so excited about bringing in. I could get up there and do a better job than what he's sharing and, and speaking this. And a freshman overheard this. And this freshman was in charge, I guess, of kind of making sure that this speaker was getting to where he needed to be. He was kind of the close guy next to him, his shadow, if you would, for while he was on the campus. And he says, I don't know if you heard the news, but a couple of hours ago, this man got a phone call with, from his wife that their son had been killed. And instead of saying, you're on your own, I'm going to go home and be with my wife, he said, God has me here to deliver a message. I'm going to deliver it. And he steps up and shares this with this incredibly heavy burden on his heart. And Chuck said that God so convicted him at that moment. Because here I am judging this guy and, and speaking against him. Yet the tragic news that he just got. You see, we, we all need to understand that only God knows. Only God truly sees what is in the heart. And only God judges according to what is truly in the heart. I read this quote this week. It says, There would be a lot less fault finding if all fault finders had to come from the ranks of the faultless. That deserves an amen right there, huh? <laughs> Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. He's, he's clearly stating, guys, we can't do this. Because when we do this, we judge each other. But he takes it a step further. Look back again, verse 11. Not only does he who speak against his brother or judge his brother, he speaks against the law and judges the law. Now what law is James talking about here? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments given to Moses? I don't believe so. I believe he's talking about the same law that he's been speaking about since he brought it up back in chapter 2, verse 8, and that is the royal law. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. Now, what does James mean when he says that you place yourself as the judge of the law when you do this? Well, the same thing that happens when judges look at the laws of our day. We see this played out in the news and what's going on in our country right now. The judges interpret the law and define what it means based on their own thoughts, their own beliefs, and their own feelings. That is what happens when you judge a law. 
And that is what James is saying here. When you speak against someone, you are judging their hearts and you are defining what it means to love your neighbor. You are defining now what love means. See, if God is judge, we know what love means. He tells us his word. He outlines it beautifully for us in 1 Corinthians 13. When God is judge, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. That is God's definition of love when he is on the judgment seat where he deserves to be. But when we place ourselves in judgment over love, when we place ourselves in that seat, we then define the terms when we are speaking against each other, judging one another's hearts, judging the law. And it sounds a whole lot more like this. Love points out impatience in others. Love reveals unkindness in others. Love highlights those who are jealous and arrogant. Love allows me to be holier than you. Love perfectly justifies my behavior. I love you, brother. That's why I'm saying this. Perfectly justifying myself because I love you. Love is not provoked unless, of course, you provoke me. Love keeps a very careful inventory of every hurt ever suffered. Love exposes unrighteous behavior, of course, based on my definition of unrighteousness. Love rejoices when everyone finally sees it my way. Love brings into light all things. Love questions all things, every action, every word, every motive. Love closely examines all things. Love exposes all things. Now, might seem extreme, but if we're all honest, can we fit ourselves somewhere in there? Okay, three of us. We can, we can excuse our behavior and cover it in, oh, it's because I love you. I, I really love so-and-so, but. You see, we use love when we are judging. We use love when we are speaking of others as a covering for ourselves in order to justify this behavior. James tells us in verse 12 of our text, there is only one lawgiver and judge. The one, notice it's capitalized, one, that's God. It's not you. The one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Again, guys, it's not supposed to be this way. We know what love is. Instead of using love as a covering for our behavior in order to justify our actions in judging one another and speaking against one another, Peter, again in 1 Peter chapter 4 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love does not expose a multitude of sins. It covers 
a multitude of sins. Now, spouses excluded in this exercise, okay? Because I don't want to cause any, any undue problems here. How many of you have someone in your life or have experienced someone who has selective hearing? Probably most of, us, most of us parents, right? You know, hearing what we want to hear and not hearing what we don't want to hear. Amazing, amazing how I can be just feet away from my child and tell him to do something and later on, I didn't hear you say that. Yet I can be three rooms away talking to my wife about their Christmas present or whatever and they hear that. I think part of what we need to develop is selective seeing. Because just like selective hearing, the same is true with what we see. We see what we want to see. I mean, that's displayed every time your favorite team on television, you know, that, that, there, there is no doubt that he's out of bounds. Hey, he's in, you know. That was a touchdown when he's clearly out of bounds. You know, that, we see what we want to see. Do we want to see the goodness in each other? Do we want to see the best in one another? Or do we want to see the faults? Do we want to see the things that we can use to tear down in order to build myself up? James tells us in, chapter, or in verse 12 that there is only one lawgiver and judge. Guys, this will make a whole lot more sense. It would be a whole lot easier for us to deal with when we get this figured out. God did not call us to judge. He tells us to love. Jesus didn't say the world will know that you're mine by the way you judge one another. But by the way you love one another. It's our job to love. It's God's job to judge. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, again, starting in verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think often the log that can become in our eye is our unloving, selfish reaction to someone else's speck in their eye. Especially if that speck is something that maybe they did or said to us. And all of a sudden now, the way we're reacting to that, we have this huge log in our eye. We can't see clearly. We can't see them clearly, much less the speck that's in their eye, and it gets magnified, blown way out of proportion. Jesus uses strong language. You hypocrite. How can you do that? How can you be speaking about your brother this way when you are the same way? You have a much bigger issue to deal with. There's a vitally important truth that we all need to understand. We need each other. 
We need each other. Husbands, you need your wives. Wives, you need your husbands. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need each other. We need each other to hold each other accountable. We need each other to admonish one another when that is necessary. But we need to understand that there is a huge difference between confronting someone in order to build them up, in order to encourage them, in order to edify them, and condemning someone in order to tear them down and to build ourselves up. God's will is that we gently admonish one another. We're called to do that. Scripture tells us to do that. As a matter of fact, Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Admonishing means correcting, pointing out where there's areas that need to be dealt with. So we are supposed to do that. But notice he says we're supposed to do it with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Is that how we do it? The key, again, if we go back and look in Colossians 3.16 here, it says, with all wisdom. Going back a couple of weeks ago, what wisdom are we using? The wisdom in our flesh, the wisdom in the world, the demonic wisdom, or the wisdom that is outlined for us very clearly in chapter 3, verse 17. Look back there. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's the wisdom. That's the filter that we need to run it all through. And if it makes it through, we step on to next, the next step. If it gets stuck in that filter, you leave it alone. <laughs> How do we gently admonish one another? We have to soak it, bathe it in prayer. We have to be deep in the word of Christ. That needs to dwell richly within us, it says. Again, using this wisdom filter that we have and then going in love, humbly, peaceably, sharing that with the other person. And then you leave it alone. It is not your job to continually hammer the point home. You share it, and you let God make them see it. You can't. Only God can do that. That, that is the difference, and that is, that is how we lovingly admonish one another. Now, before we move on from this, not only is it important we know how to bring admonishment, we also need to know how to receive it. I think a whole lot of problems that cause, are caused between us, husbands and wives, as well as amongst us, is caused by the fact that we don't know how to receive correction. We don't know how to receive admonishment. We can immediately default back to verse 11 and start speaking against the one who's bringing it to us, judging their motives. We can't do that. We, we can't start defending ourselves right away. Guys, this is it. This is the key. We have to receive it. And then the same thing. Pray about it. 
going before the Lord, reveal this to me. Show me, God, is this true? Is this true in me? Because we have such a way of disguising this stuff in us, and we can convince ourselves that it's not true. We need God to show us. Not defending, not fighting back, not defending us, ourselves to them, not defending ourselves to others, but going before the Lord and saying, show me. And if that person is wrong, they have misjudged you, you let God take care of that. Again, it's not our job to defend ourselves in this. We can't judge in return. I heard, heard this before, and I, I love this, that being a Christian, especially if you're a Christian involved in ministry, understand that the enemy is going to come after you. You have a big, huge bullseye on you, there is no doubt, especially, again, if you step out in ministries. And if you do, you need to have the heart of a dove and the skin of a rhinoceros. Think about that. And so many of us, though, would have to say, I don't have the skin of a rhinoceros. I have more like saran wrap. (laughs) And it's easily torn and it's easily punctured. There are going to be hurts. They're going to come. Again, husbands and wives, unfortunately, we're going to say stupid stuff to each other that's going to hurt because our hearts aren't in the right place at that particular time. And that's when the other one needs to stand up even stronger and say, I'm not going to fight back right now. That hurt. But Jesus, I trust you. I give this hurt to you. When we're dealing with that amongst each other, when we are not acting as we should and we say something stupid to each other, we need to the other one say, all right, that hurt. But Jesus, I give that to you. It's all about humility, gang. Everything that James talks about as we are going through this, it's all about humbly submitting ourselves. Humility. Well, as I said, there's a couple of ways we do this. We impose our will by playing God with others, but we also impose our will by playing God with God. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead... You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, as we take a look at this section that James is talking about, first thing we need to make sure we understand is James is not telling us not to plan, not to look ahead. He's not telling us just to kick back and take it as it comes. What he is warning against is making plans, doing preparations without including God in it, without seeking God and his plan, his his path for us. So often, and we can all go through an inventory, even of the last week, and say, you know, I probably fell into this on occasion where we say, all right, God, you know, you're the boss when it comes to religious issues, spiritual things, moral stuff, Ten Commandments, you did a good job there. 
But when it comes to family stuff, when it comes to finances, when it comes to vacation plans, when it comes to all of those types of things, I'm in charge. And that's what James is warning about here. There's no differentiating. If he is truly our sovereign Lord and King, he needs to be consulted and sought out in everything. But far too many people have as their life verse, God helps those who help themselves. Huge problem. It's nowhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, God steps in to help those who can't help themselves. When he draws us and pulls us into an area where we are totally, completely reliant on him, that's exactly where he wants us, and that's when he steps in to help. The problem with the person that James is outlining for us in our text is that he's saying, you know what, it's going to be my day. I determine the day, today or tomorrow. I determine the destination. I'm going to such and such a city. I determine the duration. We're going to spend a year there. I determine the directive. We're going to engage in business. I determined the dividend. We're going to make a profit. I determine all of this. My will, God, I hope you're on board. The problem with that, again, not only is it not biblical, we place ourselves as God, but the, 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 more, the, more, the thing that we really need to get a hold of is that we don't have any idea. We don't, he's got a much better plan. He's got a much better idea. You know why? Because he knows. He already knows what's out ahead. Instead of our day, we need to say, all right, Lord, what day do you have? Because quite frankly, you don't know if you have tomorrow. You don't even know if you have this afternoon. Our life is a vapor. That, that appears for a little while and vanishes away. How many of you just got out of high school, graduated from high school a couple of days ago? I mean, it just, it seems like, where did the last uh, 30 years go? It truly is. I mean, I just, I can't believe, it's, guys, it's August 11th. A vapor, gone. God, only you know what tomorrow holds. We make all of these plans preparing for 20 years from now. Are you prepared for the phone call you get this afternoon? Like maybe that, that gentleman, that missionary that got that your, your son has been killed or, or you have the, that, that, that word from the doctor that you have cancer or what? Are, are you prepared for that? Only God knows. We pick the destination. I want to go to such and such a city. Guys, that place is a dump. The destination God cares about is heaven. And everything is focused, needs to be focused on that. The duration that we put out there, a year. That sounds like a long time. God's duration is eternal. Our directives, I'm going to engage in business. God's directive, go make disciples. You don't have a whole lot of time left. Our dividend, I'm going to make a profit. Gold and all of this stuff that's going to rust and fade away. God doesn't care about that. 
God's dividend is to glorify him. Send our treasure on ahead. We're going to be there forever. We're going to be here another couple days. The whole idea of Lord willing shouldn't be a cliche. It needs to be our compass. It needs to, it needs to be our guide for whatever we're going to do, all the decisions that we make. And it's so easy for us when things get hard and difficult and we think we're on the path that God has us going on to say, man, when it gets tough and things are start going a different direction than where I thought they were going to go, we could say, well, I must be wrong. I'm, i got to jump ship and get off of here. And God is saying, no, no, no. That was all part of the plan. I'm making you stronger. I'm making you more effective. I'm preparing you for eternity. He needs to be consulted, sought out for everything that we do, every decision that we make. He wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives. Well, verse 17 brings this to a very fine point. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James gives us two points here. You need to know what to do, and you've got to do it. And using the word therefore directly ties us back into what we just talked about. So James is saying right here, if you have that spirit, that critical spirit, you have spoken against your husband, your wife, another brother or sister within the fellowship. You've, you've judged them. You have a responsibility to change. You know what to do. You can't deny it anymore. You can't say, well, I didn't know. Now you do. God's word is clear. And if you don't, it's sin. Now, Again, I know that that's kind of harsh. But again, don't you want to know that and deal with it? The Holy Spirit right now, he's prompting you in your heart with this. He's not telling you you're lost. He's telling you to change. He's telling you to repent. Repenting means, God, I agree with you. It's sin. I shouldn't have said that about that person. I shouldn't feel this way about them. I don't know their heart. Only you do. You're supposed to judge them. I'm supposed to love them. I'm getting off the chair. I'm getting on my knees. And I repent. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I know I am forgiven because I'm one of yours. And I am going to love that person like crazy from this moment on. Maybe you're here and God's speaking to you about some of the decisions you've made, some of the plans you've made, and the Holy Spirit right now is saying, you never talk to me about that. I have bigger plans for you. I have better plans for you. They might even be the plans that you've already stepped out into, but you haven't included him in that. And if that prompting is on your heart, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now, you have a responsibility to deal with it. You have a responsibility to change. If you don't, it's sin. 
And again, the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a conviction that's on our heart. And again, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should have a desire to change. So again, it's a matter of repentance. God, I'm sorry. You know, here I'm running along and thinking everything's good, and I know now it's not, and I I confess that. I repent of that. I turn from this sin and I turn to you. I want to follow your plan for my life. Bottom line again, it comes back to humility. Are we willing to let God have his rightful place on the throne and have our rightful place as his slave, his servant? Guys, we were bought with a price. The Bible tells us that we're not our own anymore. He shed his blood to purchase us, not out of freedom, to purchase us out of bondage to sin. We might have thought our lives before Christ, was, we were free. No, no, no. We were in bondage. We were slaves to sin, heading to hell for eternity. But by his blood, shedding his own blood, he purchased us. He washed us clean. And we are his. We are his servants. We are his slaves. Turn with me real quickly to Luke chapter 17. Every once in a while you come across a a section of scripture as you're reading through it and praying through it. I hope you're doing that regularly and some things just kind of jump right off the page at you. Luke 17 Verse 7, Jesus tells us in just four verses what we should expect out of this relationship of slavery to him. He says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did did the things which he was commanded to do, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, using the the slave metaphor that, that was so prevalent in that age... He said, this relationship that we have with with God now, because we have been purchased by Christ's blood, he is our master, we are his slave. We we look at this example and we see this, this servant that comes in from the field. And he doesn't get to go kick back for the rest of the day, he's not done. Even before he eats, he has to go prepare his master's meal and then go and shower and change and serve it to him before then. And notice, there's no complaining, there's no protesting, there's no, that's not fair. There's no pointing to the other servant and say, hey, what about them? They're just sitting around over there and they're not doing anything. No. There's no, there's no, he says, he says, and he doesn't even thank the slave because he did what he was commanded to do. I don't even see anywhere in here where the master said, please. But the servant does it. The servant servant does it because that's what he's supposed to do. 
that's what we are to do. Jesus said that's the attitude that we're supposed to have. Not griping and complaining, not saying, I already said I'm sorry. You mean I'm supposed to go love them now too? Yeah, <laughs> you're not done. We're only doing what we're supposed to be doing when we allow this relationship that we now have with Jesus control our actions, control our thoughts, control what we say. We're only doing what we're supposed to be doing now. Amazingly, though, and as we get ready and get our hearts prepared to take communion this morning, amazingly, not only is Jesus our master, our Lord that we serve, he's also our example of how to be a bondservant, how to be a slave. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Guys, our Lord humbled himself way more than he will ever ask us to be humbled. God himself stepped out of heaven, became one of us, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died the death of a sinner, taking all of our sin upon himself. That's humility. That's our example. He emptied himself he became nothing for us. He's coming back, and I believe very soon. And when he comes back, he's coming back as the Lion of Judah. But he came the first time as the Lamb of God. Totally submitted to the will of the Father. Completely surrendering all of his rights and silent. Our example. Submitted surrendered and silent. If you still have your finger in James chapter 4, go back there and flip a couple pages to the right. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter now writing again as Christ is our example. 1 Peter 2 verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Our example. Our example. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. He didn't utter threats. He didn't fight back. He completely submitted to the, God, the will of the Father and entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. That's our example. Now as we, again now, prepare our hearts 
to celebrate communion. Let us go before this example that we have with our hearts open to him. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together here. And Lord, I pray that truly we have our hearts open to hear from you. Lord, that you would reveal to us anything, anything that is not pleasing to you. Lord, not, not condemning. We know the Holy Spirit will be convicting us, us of sin, but the enemy wants to condemn us. Lord, we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, we want conviction. And in those areas, Lord, where you are touching now, we give them to you. If we do, and we have seen that we do have a, a critical spirit, that we have spoken against, against someone, Lord, we give that to you. We confess. If we've, if we've made plans and we've moved ahead and we've done all of these things without coming to you and we've sought our own will and not yours, Lord, we confess. We give that to you. Lord, we thank you for this intimate celebration that you call us to. This, this holy time to spend with you as we remember what you did for us and we look forward to your coming again. Lord, I pray that this time is intimate and personal right now. In Jesus' name, amen.